This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash remote ruby. This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? What's up? What's up, Chris? <laughs> we don't have Jason here again, and so it's like, we don't even know what to do. We don't know how to start our, yeah. our podcast. The intro quality takes a massive dip in, <laughs> in Jason's absence. <laughs> he was saying earlier, he can't make it, but he's started the conversion from uh, RSpec to Minitest on stuff, and he's starting to to embrace the mini test after our conversation on the previous episode. So I'm proud of that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I saw that. And you know what? God rests his soul. <laughs> Bless his heart, as we say here in the South. Yeah, well, you know, once you convert us to uh, which one? Slammel or what was the other Slammel. one? Slurb. Slurb, yeah. Slurb and Slammel. Yeah, our our mixtures of Slim and Hamill and Slim and ERB. Yeah, I am starting a new Jumpstart project with Eric and Nate because we're moving this podcast network that you're listening to this podcast on over to a new network and we're creating a little bit of stuff around that. And we're mm-hmm. going to see maybe it can become more in the future. But for right now, we're kind of just starting to getting it off the bases and I converted the jumpstart app to slim and I don't know how I feel about that, but I did it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the process of merging a big internationalization update and oh my God, like every single view, every controller that has a flash message has to change. And I can imagine converting to slim is equally painful, like amounts of work. Yeah, it it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. The one thing, if anyone else tries to use Slim with Tailwind, is that you can't use like the width, like you can't use the slash. So like width dash one slash two, that doesn't work in Slim because the slash is a, an escape character. So oh, well. I had to change the Tailwind config to convert all this to underscores. But other than that, it was not. It wasn't very painful. It was a relatively easy migration, but the annoying part is now when I like copy classes off of Tailwind UI or somewhere else, then I have to convert to Slim. But honestly, I I like it, especially because we're using components. And when you're using components, the markup with Slim just looks so much nicer. Yeah, it probably makes sense. Yeah, the I, I don't know. I still far prefer the... You know, I want my code to be as close to what runs in the browser as I can, you know? So I see the value in... If if you were moving towards components and you're rendering a lot of stuff in your components, then like your views end up being more Ruby anyway. So like that makes sense. Yeah. You know, but I don't have any components yet. Maybe that'll be something I do more in the future. I really... Really want to. I need to talk to Jason and see if he'll share with me the Tailwind UI components that he wrote. Because that, have, being a Tailwind UI user, it is 
pain in the butt. So that would be a really good reason for me to, you know, integrate um, that stuff. Somebody recently pointed out that I still have Alpine and Stimulus on GoRails because I copied all the Alpine JavaScript stuff from the Tailwind docs back before they removed it. And RIP. I like, oh, I was like, oh yeah, I guess I should move all that stuff. So hopefully they'll get, you know, some actual JavaScript examples in there soon. It sounds like they're working on it, but you know, they've only made like what, 2 million bucks so far on Tailwind UI. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> they're killing it. They're ki- yeah, it. no, it's it's so like impressive and like jealousy inducing and just like yeah. dang. Like what yeah. it really says to me is that if all of us could find like our own Steve Sugar, we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really really just need to clone Steve Sugar. There's something like really, you know, inspiring about it because it's like two dudes came together like Steve is much more of a designer and like than a than a developer and then Adam's like a developer who just like really cares about the details and the designs and stuff, you know, and like just wants things to be easy to change, which I think is like the the right way to build software most of the time because inevitably it's going to change. So if you design it so it's easy to change, that's, you know, the whole, you know, long-term goal that you should have, I feel like, because it's always going to be like, well, we got to throw this out or move it to a different place. And if we do that, we also got to rewrite the way it looks and whatever. So it seems, I don't know, really, really interesting to see how that all came about. Cause you know, like it's just two guys kind of thought of a new way of doing things and like everything else has been free you know, bootstrap and all that. They maybe sell some templates and stuff, but like these guys built a framework and then taught you how to use it. And then everybody was like, yeah, I'm more than happy to pay for that. And then they come out with the theme and that worked really well because they spent all that time teaching you how to think like a designer and stuff. It's just like really cool to see. And there's, you know, God knows how many other things you could be the component master and start teaching people components. And, you know, that could be your business or who knows what it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fun to see. It's fun to watch. And it's also fun to like, listen to them kind of talk about it because they, Steve, not as much, but definitely Adam has gone on a product podcast several times and kind of talked about it. And then Adam obviously has his own podcast that he talks about tailwind and kind of tailwind UI a lot on. and. So it's it's great to like not only see what they're putting out, but also hearing them talk about it and their rationale behind it, I think is what really kind of convinced me to go like pay like I would pay for it. Just listening to them talk about it, it was like, okay, this sounds like something that's gonna give me value. And they're putting a massive amount of like thought and effort and they're doing this in the open, which I appreciate. So yeah, I don't know. I uh I bought Tailwind UI, I bought refactoring UI, and I'm pretty happy with both. Yeah, I really like the, you know, going deep on the philosophy of how and why it works the way that it does. And like, you don't see enough of that. A lot of times, you know, something will, a new framework will drop and it's like, here you go. And we we did it because we wanted things to be different and they don't really go into enough depth on 
why it's different and why it works well. They'll talk a little bit about why it's different. I mean, the amount of examples that they have put out is incredible. And that's like what convinces people to switch to it. So yeah, they, they've killed it. They've done such a good job. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's fun to watch, especially because I didn't think like, I don't know who would have thought, you know, like we've had bootstrap for all this time and I, I'm not going to do my bootstrap rant right now, but I'm sure you can find it if you listen through past episodes. But I mean, Tailwind, I've been using Tailwind for almost four or five years at this point, like almost since it came out. I wrote my first Tailwind site in college. Mm. So I wrote my own Webpack config. It didn't really work. Like looking back on it, I (laughs) had to go back to that project one day. I was like, this Webpack config isn't really doing anything. But yeah, so I've been, I've just been so invested with Tailwind. And I think Tailwind is a, it's a great idea. So I'm going to continue pushing for it. But, you know, it's not for everyone and there's ways to make it work for everyone. But, you know, I, I'm always like interested when people are just completely revolted right out of the box. And, you know, typically <laughs> it is around like the idea of like, oh, well, I want a card. I don't want to think about what the card is. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's what Tailwind UI solves. And I'm actually more surprised there aren't more Tailwind themes like coming out just because of how popular the whole bootstrap theme economy is. Yeah. I told one of my friends about that, you know, and I was like, you can easily do lots of bootstrap themes in Tailwind. And I'm kind of surprised no one's done it before Adam and Steve did, you know, like Tailwind UI is great, but you could just come at it with a different style and build your own and sell it the same way, you know? And it's weird because it's like, it's kind of open source because if you implement it, then all of the like classes are publicly available. So like it's harder to protect, but you're really just buying the license to to use it or whatever. And so, you know, it is in a, in a sense, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, you're just buying it because you want to support them. You could probably go copy stuff, but you're not going to have it organized. You're not going to get updates and all that stuff. And like, it's worth giving them money to enable them to continue making it better for you. You know, that's right. kind of really what you're paying for. And it's interesting to see that as like, they, they can make 2 million bucks from that. No problem. But if it was a sponsorship or a Patreon or something, they wouldn't have made 2 million bucks. Yeah, no way. You know? I mean, I'll never forget the day that we we were talking to Eric about like open source. I think on an episode, he was on an episode of the Ruby Blunt. We were talking about GitHub sponsors. And I don't remember the exact way he worded it, but the essence of it was basically like, and one of the reasons why he started CoFund in the first place is because things like GitHub sponsors and the other type of kind of funding mechanisms for, you know, paying developers for open source is it's like a massive circle jerk. And sorry, PG warning, but I mean, if you think about it, like, okay, for instance, I sponsor Jared on GitHub Sponsors because I want him to continue pouring awesome stuff into uh, Bridgetown and I believe in that project and I want to sponsor him. He sponsors me for whatever reason, I guess just to support me in some way. But you know, it, it's kind of like that. Like I could support you and you could be supporting Jason and Jason could be supporting... I don't know, DHH and DHH could be supporting me. And at the end of the day, it's just one big circle jerk and not moving like the needle anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it is great to see what they've done to kind of like market and create products around their open source. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it's such an interesting thing. Like I was on, um, Avdi's Patreon the other day and he's like not even up to 700 a month, you know? And it's like, it's Avdi. Like everybody loves Avdi. He's awesome. Right. And yeah, it's like, it's an interesting thing. Like people see it as donations and they're not as compelled to do that, but they'll happily throw you 150 bucks if you sell them something, you know? Yeah. It just, it feels like, I don't know, but it's probably the way that things need to go. Like uh, sidekick, you know, that makes really, really good money and thousand over a thousand bucks a year, which is not really that much for any business, you know? And he's able to build that and support it and everything. But if it was totally open source and, you know, donation supported, eh, it wouldn't do very well. So No, it wouldn't, which is sad, but I don't know. My thing with like Patreon, because I used to sponsor, I used to sponsor a few people on Patreon and now I don't except for the Pika package group because I, I want like new stuff that they're like, if you subscribe on their Patreon, they give you the new stuff first. So. Uh, that oh, was nice. like all it yeah. took for me. But I I don't like the fact that it's a subscription. I think that's like the one thing that kind of throws me a little bit. Our entire world seems like a massive subscription and it's hard to keep up with everything. Mm-hmm. And the one project I saw that was really cool that was kind of trying to solve this and I don't know where it's at right now, but it was basically a... It was basically the open... It was an open source project and it had a license on the open source project that was like prohibitive in ways, but you could pay for the project and get like the license to do whatever you wanted. Yeah. I thought that was uh, kind of a cool idea. Hey, uh, by the Mm -hmm. honey badger guys is it's like open source for, and it's kind of like a 30 day trial, but there's no way to enforce that and whatever. So it's kind of, it's kind of a paid thing, but open at the same time, which is interesting. So I'm I'm curious to see how that goes. I think it's a cool idea. And you know, there's there's been a lot of like JavaScript chart libraries and things that are like the free version and then three thousand dollars for the paid version or something. You know, and I, I think at the end of the day, like you said, you don't want another subscription like tax on your life to commit to every month and being able to buy even if it's just like a t-shirt or something, you know, you can give them mm-hmm. something, you get something in return and, you know, it just feels more, it feels easier to do for some reason, you know, but yeah, it does. I don't know why, but it does. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows why? I don't either. Speaking of webpack configs earlier, after we talked on the podcast, Adrian Polly made a PR to Tailwind uh, stimulus components, and that's now down to like 1.5 kilobytes or something. And it seems like the big thing was, and I, I've never looked into this actually with node modules, but so there's a dependency, you know, de- mm-hmm. a dev dependency just in development, then there's regular dependencies, and then there's peer dependencies. And I think the way that it works is yep. that like if you have a dependency on jQuery version two, then another project can have a dependency on jQuery version three and it's going to include both separately and not share them. Unlike what we're used to in Ruby with Bundler, where it's like 
look, if you're going to include the Stripe gem, we're going to include that and it needs to be the same, you know, the same version for all these libraries. It's not like a versioned require. And so that was, it seems like the reason why it was a larger final uh, size than it should have been. Because I think I was shipping a separate copy of stimulus inside of there on accident. So the peer dependency means yeah. your your you know your parent project just needs to define that stimulus is there and whatever version. So that seemed like the big reason that it was bad. Yeah, there I I made several PRs and just like they just got way too big in scope for that project, and I never actually ended up finishing them because they just got like too big. But yeah, that was like the first thing was changing stimulus to a peer dependency because you don't want the project to ship with stimulus, but you want stimulus to be in the project. And I will say the one important note about that is sometimes when you're running yarn install, you might see like an error in your, like in the, or a warning or an error that's like peer dependency is not installed. And it's, like you need to like kind of like once you know about peer dependencies and like how they work, you should probably you need to start taking like a closer look at those because I don't know you can I, it just kind of adds like a whole new dimension and like just becoming familiar with what peer dependencies are in the first place. And stimulus reflex is another example of a library that needs the uh, package JSON refactor a little bit because it doesn't need to ship with stimulus or whatever. I think it ships with stimulus right at the moment. It doesn't need to do that. It just needs to. Stimulus needs to be installed in the environment that this package is added. So when you're doing like a stimulus package like you have, you need stimulus as a peer dependency. And then usually you can just keep stimulus as like a, a development dependency. Yeah. Um, so the package right. doesn't ship then, with it. Because in development, you if you're testing, you would need it as a dev dependency because the peer dependency says like, I make no claims on installing this. Yeah. Like, whereas I think the the thing for me was like bundler then and gems and Ruby are like always peer dependencies kind of, you know, and they're not quite the same concept. So like the regular dependency in node is like a strict, like this is for me and it's private to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a dependency only for me. Whereas that's not really a thing at all in, in Ruby gems. It's like, it's either globally available for everybody or not at all. And we can't have two versions of Nokugiri or something. It's only one. And it right. is the typical example where it's like, oh yeah, somebody didn't update their gem for the latest Faraday. And so it's way outdated and whatever. And this Now we have conflicting gems. So yeah, it's interesting. Like I see the reasoning for it, but it adds like, quite a lot of complexity and it's probably more maybe more necessary because you want to fine-tune that stuff in the browser but like server side you probably have more control over the code that you're including so like who cares you're never going to want two versions of faraday in your your server side thing right yeah and it is it's complex and yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just complex and it takes research. And what I found is that a lot of Rails developers specifically who I see writing stimulus packages, the like the package probably works great, but the way they're bundling it up and shipping it is typically incorrect. 
for some reason or could be better, more enhanced, a smaller package, this or that. So that's something I've been thinking and I've been trying to kind of help out in some area, but I have yet to finish it. So it feels like it would be a good article to put on better stimulus or something where it's like, uh, here's what your, you know, default package JSON should look like. Add your dependencies as peer dependency is. Here's your build step, you know, and whatever else you would kind of want by default. And Adrian moved the build step to micro bundle, which mm-hmm. I haven't used before. And then he yeah. mentioned also the NP package, which is like a NPM publish kind of helper tool because it does a little bit more of like uh-huh. creates a release for you on GitHub and, you know, those little little things you're manually doing every time you publish a new release, which was nice. Like, that'll be cool to, to use next time around. So, yeah, it was interesting just to see, like, my assumption was for the longest time it was going to work like Bundler, but it does not. So, no, it does not. The NP package is pretty good. The Pika Pack CLI has that. And that was something that I was trying to add to the Simulus uh, Tailwind thing. But I just like, like I said, I just like went too far with it every single time. And then I never finished it because I was like, well, <laughs> what's he not going to want? Or like, what is he going to want? Like, this is kind of like an overall shift in like the way you like publish the package and this and that. But the, it's really nice because it will create like the, it'll have like the change log for you. And like with the Pika pack, like, entire thing like i i recommend just going and researching it but it'll help you ship like different versions because like your like node can like accept like an es6 like uh package right and then the browser needs standard or common js and then you could also ship web modules or the typescript definitions and pika pack like does a lot of that for you and it will even like give you what its best attempt at the typescript definitions are like so it just gives you so much out of the box for free and it's all automated and it's all done for you so that's something like eventually I will get around to creating like you know a simple stimulus package with that and I think like that entire workflow is just so much better that I I'm hoping like eventually in the future like we won't be seeing like people in the stimulus community putting out like these incorrect incorrect package JSONs yeah, it'd be cool to make like a GitHub repo template so that you could just fork that or whatever and make your own from scratch there. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Speaking of of stimulus stuff, Julian Rubish published another awesome gem. And did have you ever used the render async library that was came out a few years ago, I think? I have. I don't think I've ever used it, but this is kind of like a modern version of that using uh, Cable Ready, which is pretty sweet. So basically, like his examples are, you know, you can render a table of posts on your index action, and then each one of those items, rather than rendering the partial right away, you can just render a like a futurism element custom div tag thing. Or you can render like a table row with an attribute that Futurism will pick up and then basically go and over the WebSocket, have it ask for those, render them, 
and update the page, which is pretty sweet. It looks awesome. It's like super simple from the, like the implementation of it is you just say future eyes and your collection that you want to render and you're done, which is pretty cool. So yeah, it looks, it looks neat. You know, it's the first version. So I'm sure there's lots of little things and it's using like the SGIDs so that, you know, nobody can tamper with the, you know, the ID that is on the, in the client side. You don't want that to be where you, where you can change it to be like admin user number one and render that out instead. So they use SGIDs, which I've liking seeing more people using because there was a, an example that was on, was it on uh, Boring Rails recently about doing a select box of multiple models and combining all of them into a single select and just using a, a sign global ID to reference, you know, 15 different models if you wanted in a single select, which I think people kind of, you know, there, there's a lot of situations where maybe you want to do a polymorphic you know, relationship. And then how do you represent that in the UI? You've got to select the model first and then the ID and stuff. And he had a, a post on that. And this is another good use for those signed global IDs, which I thought was cool. Yeah, that is, uh, that is pretty cool. Interestingly enough, here's a random tidbit. A podcast in a podcast feed and an RSS feed should have a, a signed global ID as well. I know that for no reason. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like I said, I have no idea why, and there's no reason to even say that, but that's the first thing I thought of. But yeah, this project by Julian looks really cool. I need to look in a little bit because we used Render Async prior to Seamless Reflex existing at CodeFund, and there are issues and there are things to consider with it. And one of the last PRs that didn't actually end up getting merged because we just ran out of time was removing all of... Actually, you know what? I think it was actually render later, but I think it's the same kind of idea where you just tell something to like go fetch like a partial or whatever after the page renders. So, mm-hmm. uh, But th- there's issues with that if you're not aware of them. So I don't know. Huh. It, it was, a, it was a, a, uh, an issue of performance for us, especially if because I think specifically we were doing it on tables. So we would have like a little sparkline graph and when we would render the table and then the table would render asynchronously that graph. And it was just like a, I don't know, it was just kind of a nightmare. Mm, Yeah. Well, I could see like it getting out of hand pretty quickly where you're like, render this table asynchronously, like every row. And then you're like, okay, we just made a hundred Ajax requests. And yeah, you know, that's one of the benefits of using it over, you know, cable ready in the, the WebSocket. Like those aren't separate requests. The connection was open the whole time. So you're not opening up a bunch of slow requests. You can do that way faster. But yeah. you're going to need to make sure that like your server has plenty of power to handle those bursts of like, okay, we're going to, you know, process a hundred of these really quickly. Because, yeah, um, I don't know how that works threading wise, you know, or each of those kind of run as a separate thing or is it just request like run in the same, you know, thread or whatever. I haven't looked into the internals of that. I'm not sure, but 
the even like scarier version of what you just said is like thinking about this on like if we're going back to the table example where each table wrote has a render async if it's a paginated table and like you have a user that goes to the table and then starts quickly like moving pagination like steps or whatever whatever they're called pagination pages or whatever pages you could suddenly have like someone on page nine and if there's at like i don't know 50 or 20 let's say 20 um elements on each row you just kicked off 180 requests and they don't even want most of them they only really want them on the page that they stop on yep and I've definitely dealt with this on Hatchbox. Like if those are kicking off things that take a second and you've started to load those, you know, 60 on one page and you've navigated to the next page, then some of those, you know, the last 20 might have taken a second longer. So now they're going to get inserted on page two when they were really for page one. And mm-hmm. yeah, when you start getting into the asynchronous stuff there, it gets way trickier. And there are some weird gotchas like that that are strange. Like, it's funny because I have like state machine for the servers on Hatchbox. So, you know, you'll click deploy or something and we change the status to deploying. And there's so many times where Sidekick is so fast that it started it as deploying before the page is finished rendering and you've connected, you know, back to the WebSocket or whatever. So it will broadcast the status update, but the page hasn't rendered in your browser fast enough to uh, change the state to deploying. So it's just like lost in, in the ether. It was sent over, but it just didn't make it in time. And it's pretty funny to see some of those things. You're like, I actually either need to change the way this works and do it ahead of time, or like I need to slow things down and delay it for half a second so that the page can render. And it's pretty funny when you get into those things because you're like, wow, like my code's so fast that it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, there's there's hidden complexity and until you find it, like it's all good until you find it. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Um futurism is something you guys should check out. I'm gonna play with it soon, I think. It'll be cool to I think one of the things I may try and do if I can just to get involved is add an extra option to futurism to specify the partial path. And then it can either render the regular default partial path or you can override it so that I think that's the one thing that I find, you know, a little bit annoying is like there's so many times where you need to render the same content a little bit differently. And even with action text, it's like we need one for inside of tricks and one for outside of tricks. And there might be other cases where you need a different format of it. So you can't like just always use the same two partial path because you really need to be able to render it. If it's in a table, we should make it look differently than if it's, you know, in a card or whatever. And Having that ability to specify your partial is pretty useful. So that might be my first contribution to it, which hopefully isn't too too hard, but I'll try and make a screencast out of it if anybody's interested. Yeah, I would definitely watch that. Also, I just want to take a moment to appreciate the graphic that Render Async has on their readme is freaking awesome. (laughs) Uh, Let me pull it up here. It is so cool. I think I saw it, but I didn't. Oh, yeah. And it's like, what is that? Spaceships? 
It's like some sort ruby of spaceship, like shooting out ruby gems. I don't know. We we'll we'll put a link to the readme in the uh, show yeah. notes. So that's good. Check it out. If not for only this reason, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Cool. So what else have you been up to? Well, not a whole lot. Mostly been busy with non-programming things. We started designing our our house that we're going to build. So I've been having fun with that process, but for once it feels like I am the client, you know, hiring a developer Mm -hmm. to like design and build me something. And I totally understand, you know, from the other side of the table, you know, when people were hiring me as a consultant to go build and, you know, build an app for them. Now I know what it felt like to be on that side to be like, well, I wanted to do this, but I don't know how to draw it or like mock it up or like what needs to be there. And you're like watching YouTube videos, trying to get an understanding of how things should work ideally. And, you know, it's the little things of like what kind of insulation or windows you want are like, should we use Python? Should we use, you know, Ruby or... right? Heroku or AWS and all those same like decisions you have to educate yourself on. So it's it's kind of interesting just to be on the other side of the table for once. It's not programming, but it feels very much like the same process of like consulting. This reminds me, well, in high school I did some like virtual reality class. And one thing that we used was a program called Google SketchUp, I think. And I yep. think that is yep. a tool for like architecture type design. Yeah, that's what my, one of my really good friends is the architect. So he's using SketchUp for laying everything out. So yeah, and it, that's it's cool. even like, it was a Google, Google bought it at it some was. time and they spun it off and it's like uh, free for personal use, which is mm-hmm. awesome. So I was like, yeah, send me the SketchUp stuff and like I'll fiddle with it on my computer and It'll be interesting to see that. The weird thing, and just like software is like, you can design a house in SketchUp, but with if there's no, you have to be able to look at like the floor plan. You don't know the scale of anything because you're like, it's all blank walls. They're all white, you know? Right. And you don't, you don't have any idea of like what it would feel like to be in there. And it's the same thing when you're like, you know, a client's like, oh, I want to build this app that does whatever. And you're like, cool we'll use bootstrap. And then they're like, they're like, yeah, but this like doesn't feel like the design that I want. It's like, yeah, well, this is temporary. And you'll just uh, have to yeah. imagine it, you know, as I've a final design. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely, it's, it's problematic. And that and like placeholder text. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's man, there's so many parallels to it. It's pretty fascinating. And there's like those little details that you can get involved into. Like, you know, we want to make sure we have our house as airtight as possible or whatever your requirement is. And, you know, that can be things that are like, we need to, you know, our app needs to be able to support a thousand people all at once or, you know, whatever your requirements are. And those, those are things that are like, you can go down the rabbit hole of pretty fast and things get expensive quick as well. Yeah. This and you don't uh, even know if you like really need it or not. You're like, that sounds great. I, I want that. Right. But you don't know if it's going to make a difference or not, but it will definitely cost you. <laughs> this reminds me of a meme 
this is one of my favorite memes from when I was a designer and it was like a price list. And it was like, we designed everything $500. We design you watch $800. We design you advise $1,000. We design you help $1,500. We design, you design, we help $2,000. You design, we advise $3,500. You design, we watch $5,000 and you design everything (laughs) 8,000. It's like, it is the perfect, like, of of like that like entire process of like working with clients who yeah like want to be super hands on and you're like well it's going to cost you more because you're going to take you're going to cost us more time and I don't know I thought yeah. I, I thought about that when you were kind of referring to you know yeah that process it's so fascinating it's definitely you know there's so many parallels there it's so good how's your uh, how's your job search been it's going yeah you know it's right yeah but it's slower also because at some point i realized like i don't know like the first day or two out of code fun i was like all right have to find a job right now started looking everywhere started applying interviewing and then i was like okay interviewing sucks and i hate it and i like i have never like i i got a my first rails job the monday following my graduation and I've pretty much worked ever since. Like I'm not a massive vacation person. And suddenly at some point I realized I was like, look, I have some runway and I don't want to work right now. <laughs> I was like, so I continued in, like interviewing process with a few companies, but I kind of just stopped for like just to take a little bit of a break, a little vacation if it were. And I think that's been very beneficial. So it's uh it's still going, but you know. It could be better, I guess. <laughs> Dude, that's... I mean, there are moments where I'm like, I don't remember the last time I've just like sat and f- with my own thoughts. And, you know, taking time to do that makes a world of difference. Because mm-hmm. then you're going to start realizing like, yeah, I actually don't want to become like... Uh, you know, I I had a... I had like a dream of like, oh, I don't work for Google or something. A long right. time ago. And I don't have that anymore because, like, most of the engineers at Google get to do one specific thing and that's it, you know? And I'm like, right. It's not me. I don't like that. I like running my own business and I get to do, you know, some coding, some design, some marketing, you know, all support, like to do less support. But, you know, like, I like the thinking about the strategy and all of those other things and, like, just, the whole, the whole umbrella of all of it is what I actually like the most. And, you know, I don't, I, it took me a while uh, to realize that because I was just always like, I'm going to be a developer and that's what my job is going to be forever. And then I, over time, I was like, this sucks. Like, I don't want yeah. to be a code monkey doing that forever. Like, it's not what I want. It's not challenge. Like, in a weird way, it was like, it's not challenging enough because most of the time, if they give me a problem, it's just a matter of time. I'll figure it out. Like it may take me two years if it's a really hard thing or whatever, but I'll figure it out. But I was like, the bigger challenge is those things where I'm like, I don't know how to do marketing or you know design right. or any of those. And I'm like, that seems like more fun because that's like, I don't even know where to begin. And that's scary. And that seems like a good way to like improve myself and learn lots of new things. So 
Yeah, I think there's like times where you can take a month off and just like think or whatever really helps. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other reason was very shortly after like getting laid off, I had like a coding interview and I like basically bombed it. And that just like after that, I kind of just like sat back and, you know, all of the whole like imposter syndrome aside, I kind of just sat back and I was like, I am so burned out. And I, didn't even really realize it, it kind of just took him it took me like getting like just like that like hit in the head with like reality of like you know like you know some if you're gonna do a coding interview maybe you should practice a little bit prior you know i'm not like a rock star even though sometimes i like to forget that and because i am at this point totally comfortable just being a code monkey honestly and like that's what i do and then all like all of a sudden like doing like a, a coding interview and just like just like just not doing well and not doing like what you know you can do. And it's just incredibly, it was like incredibly frustrating and it just kind of like smacked me into like reality. And I was like, you know what? I'm so burned out and I'm so tired and I just need like some time. Yeah. So yeah, that's good, man. Like take the time off. And I, I know those feelings of like, there was a, there's an interview I did and they like explicitly told me they were going to do no whiteboard stuff. Mm-hmm. And then like third person I interview with, they're like, okay, go up on the whiteboard and like sort a stack only using stacks. And I was like, what? Like, I don't yeah, know. Like, the last what? Time I've, like, I don't, I don't normally need stacks, you know, in my, and who does like, yeah, like it's useful for, for some problems, but this is like, an arbitrary thing. And I was like, first of all, you guys lied to me. Like, I don't know what that says about you, but it doesn't make me confident. And then like, then I was like, you know, caught off guard with that. And I was like, just, you want to make a good impression when you're interviewing. And so when they do stuff like that, you're just like, like, yeah, now I have to, now I'm nervous because you caught me off guard and then I can't think straight. And normally I would just sit and, you know, be like, hey, I haven't used the stack in a long time. Can you refresh me? And, you know, we'll just like talk through it or whatever. And that was one time where I was like, I just kind of like shut down and I was like, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and I it, bombed it. it. And, and, you know, it's like it, on any given day, they could have given me, me that same problem as a take home thing and I would have done fine. But like, you know, it, those, the atmosphere they put you in is so, so weird sometimes. And yeah. you're like, this is not any, I don't operate like this on a daily basis. Why do you want to test me like that? You know, with a gun to my head. It's strange. It is strange and it's frustrating and unfortunate and this and that. But yeah, it's, it's just like, uh, I don't know. It was very discouraging. And I was, I think I needed that wake up call. But it was also like, I don't understand why you're making me prove that I can write like Ruby when like I can show you all the Ruby I've written. Like why on this at on the spot without any prior like information, like you're throwing me a problem and you're like, solve this in Ruby in like this small amount of time on a cloud-based IDE that you're unfamiliar with. And like while someone's watching you and it's just like, you know, this is like, like what you're trying to prove I can like, I don't know what they're trying to prove. It just yeah. doesn't seem... And they don't either. It's frustrating. I don't think they have any idea either, you know, like how to do it better or anything. So they're just, they're just as lost. And it's sad because it's like, 
they're going to lose out on hiring all these good people because they don't know how to interview people because no one mm-hmm. good is going to want to go through that. You know? Right. Exactly. And they're not like, it's not what they train themselves for. So like you, you need to be able to interview the same way that they're going to work every day. And it just doesn't like seem to be the thought process that any interviewers have for whatever reason. It's weird. Yeah. But I'm, I've always been incredibly good at like the actual vocal part of interviews. But I mean, cause I used to like, I used to cause like, you're on podcasts. Well, yeah, that, but I used to hire people and I used to like, I used to hire people and read resumes and like go, I did some career training around it. So I'm very, very good at that, but it's like, okay, all of a sudden you're in a completely different environment with no warning and like you have to solve this problem. It's like, okay, well, you know, I could solve this problem, but I need to like think about it and I need a whiteboard and, you know, like, you know, this and that. And I'm like, I don't know. It's just, it's whatever. <laughs> yeah. You'll be the person that comes into the interview and like just talks by themselves for an hour straight. And they're like, this guy must do podcasts. Uh, like he hasn't even taken a breath and he's talked for an hour. And we just asked him what his name was and he's still talking. <laughs> oh man, I, I could. <laughs> Speaking of ranting, unless you wanted to touch on anything more on that subject, I wanted to talk about the new slots API with view component before we run out of time. Yeah. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. So doing this without showing code is going to be a little challenging, but I'm going to see what I can do. So I know you've never been a view component. Well, you've probably looked at it, but you haven't done any view component work. So perfect. This will be a good... Like 14 times and just never... Right. Anything. So... If you, one aspect of view component right now is this thing called content areas. So if you think about a card, you can render your card component and then you can do, it's called like with, or you do like render card component dot new do component in your front end. And then you do component dot with header do. And that's the content area for your header that you can put content inside of. And then you can do like, is that modeled off like the yield? With a name and a content for and a symbol name. It seems kind of similar where you can do like, have you done that? You know, like I have done that, but not exactly. It seems kind of similar, but it has to be inside of that block. Right. Yeah. Well then, cause, but in your, in your component markup, you would then basically put like whatever you render inside of that content area is basically mapped to the name of that content area. So in your component, HTML, you would just put, you would like ERB partial with just header, for instance, for that card header. And that would contain all of the content that you specify within the block that you have in your view. Does that make sense? Or did I get a little confusing there? Uh, I think it mostly makes sense. It's easier to follow along on the, the readme as you're talking. It is. Well, the problem with this kind of approach that they have with the content areas is that let's say that I have a card and I have a header and a body and a footer, but let's say um, on this page, I want the background of the card to be white or black or blue or whatever. And then I want like the, the header to have you know, some sort of different attribute. Like for some reason, I need to alter the attributes of the way this header on this specific card will render. And there's no way to do that with the content area kind of API. So what they've done is they've created the slots, the slot API, which in a slot is actually a term from web components. It's actually an HTML element called slot. 
And it basically, yeah, you can look at the definition of a slot. It kind of, it makes the name make a lot of sense, but basically the API is now, they kind of operate in a similar way to your content areas where you can do, you can have a body and a footer and a, a header slot, but it takes it a step further by allowing you to actually customize the slot. So let's say back to that, that header I want, I want the font to be bold. You can pass in arguments into your slot, which you couldn't do with the content area to like make modifications to it. And the other thing is you can turn them into a, a collection. So let's, let's take a list item or a list group. So you could have your uh, list group component, and then you would have an item as a collection slot. And then you could just keep doing component.slot item do, and then the stuff inside of it. And then you could continue repeating that, which you couldn't do with content areas because you could only have one inside of a component. So that's gotcha. like a lot of power right there. And view component already has like collection rendering, but this is just kind of making, taking it a step further for if you want your component to have, to repeat the same, like if, you, if your card component has two bodies, for instance, like I've seen cards like that where they'll have like a header and then an image and then a body. And then they may have like a list group and then they'll have like another body and a footer. Like a pricing, a pricing card is probably a good idea to like exemplify this. And with the new slot API, you can like re, you can add another slot for your body and you don't have to do anything funky, which the content area kind of like limited you to. Yeah. It looks like from the readme, it looks like the, content area stuff was like really, really similar to the content for and yields that are like, we have a single name for this. And then Mm -hmm. the slots you can kind of, because the slots you can even define a class like for the card header or whatever. And then that can have like its own logic, which is interesting. So then that's really, you know, the the extension, because the, if you're using, I mean, if you're using content for and yields, it's just like, here, give it a string. And that's like the content area version, which is just a simple string. But this now right. is like the object you're passing around. Yeah. So, cool. so it's, it's almost seen, like its own mini component. In yes, it is. Like, that's a good way of referring to it. Although some people don't love that analogy, but it is kind of like, I have a component that has subcomponents. Yeah. And you can have, they can be generic and non-customizable. Or you can give them a class name and define a class for that slot that can then accept you know, arguments and be a lot more customizable and a lot more powerful. Yeah, I don't see... I mean, to me, it's like subcomponents. Like the card might have a header, which is like in its, on its own, that's its own little component, like a card header component, you know? So to me, it seems like just breaking it down even more to little more little components that are modular in a nice way to, to move them around mm-hmm. and duplicate them and all that stuff. Looks yeah. nice. It is really nice because prior to doing this, like at CodeFund, like we had our cards, but like there were instances where the cards were different or like the header might be a little bit different, like or the header's not just like a piece of text. It's like a I don't know, like text with like a button on the right side or something like that. And the most efficient way to handle it was to basically create your card component. You would create separate components for your header, body, 
and footer and whatever else that you could, so you could then pass arguments to them to customize them as needed. But this bakes it all into like the same kind of thing. So you have one component that can have multiple slots and the slots can be customizable and they can have their own separate classes if you want to make them editable or different. And I don't know, I, I think this is a ma- like I've been, I paired with Joel on it at some point to kind of like look at a way because that was a problem we had. Like I wanted to pass extra, extra classes to my content areas and it wasn't possible. And we kind of experimented with a API for doing this, but it was a part of the content area API. And this new slot API is just way more well-defined and extensible version of that. So I, I discovered it the other day and I tried it out and it's everything I wanted. And it, I think it really takes view component to a different level. Yeah, it seems like it just adds that, you know, it, it takes it from like a, a simple and basic like content for yield approach to like full components, like react all the way down kind of, yeah. you know, which is, yeah, it's infinitely more flexible this way. You can pass in any arguments into each slot, which is super nice because then, you know, you can have logic inside of the header. Where it's like, look, if you didn't pass me a button, then, you know, or no link, then we won't include that. We'll change the, you know, classes to be this or whatever. And, you know, each of those little things now has its own logic where it was just like raw HTML you had to give it before with content areas. And that, that helps a lot, especially when, like, the problem with components is you don't want, you don't want to have to define a card with header, card without header, card with header and button, Mm -hmm. you know? And then you'd have like the duplication across all of those. And you really just want like a card that's smart enough that understands if you have an image for the header or you you have text in the header or text in a button that it should be able to handle all of those, you know, smartly. And it should be responsible for that, not you know, you remembering, oh yeah, we need to render this card with header, you know, button. And so right. it seems like a great solution for that. Almost seems like you could drop the, with content areas in a future version, just to, you know, I think get rid they of are. that. And, or they could just almost replace the internals with like the slot stuff and just alias it almost. Well, the thing, they are going to drop content area at some point because if you don't define like a, a class that defines your slot and it's not a collection, just a normal slot is the same, basically the same, basically the same thing as a content area. It's a defined block of code in your, in your component that you like know that somewhere else you're pat, you're either passing arguments into it or like, not passing argument, sorry. You're putting content inside of it in your view. And so the slot without any classes and without any collection is basically the same as a content area. So at some point, this will become the API and the content area will go away. And I'm all for it. I've seen some people who don't like it or disagree and I don't understand why because as someone who's been using components since like basically it was announced, like this is exactly all I, what I needed to solve all my problems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems, seems like it covers all the bases and is really what you want. Like you were going to end up doing some weird workarounds with the old API. So yeah, this extends that makes it way, way more flexible, which is good. 
because otherwise, like I would imagine you would end up with like a header and then like header classes content area kind of thing where it's like we just, you know, yield that inside of the class attribute. On, yeah. Not, not good. Well, that or you basically have to revert to your normal CSS and HTML. Like you define the content area of your header, but you're, it's not special in any way. It's literally just a placeholder for like your header to go in into. And ideally your header should like, I don't know, like if you pass like a type, for instance, your header of like just text or like text with action or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Ideally, like you should be able to have that. And it was not possible before, but is possible now. So I just wanted to like call attention to it because it is still, it's under active development. So I think people should like get their hands on it and try it out and see if there's any issues and or report what they think about it if they don't agree with it. So yeah, there's yeah. my soapbox. Yeah. No, that's cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to try it soon. Seems like the perfect thing to, I mean, as, you know, as you're building buttons and cards and all those other things, like it's just so natural to be able to be like, eh, render a card and then have that just take care of all those little details for you. I'm tired of copy and pasting you know, the tailwind stuff and then searching yep. for the, oh, where's the header div? It's nested in like five or six or seven, you know, divs or whatever, just to get the, and get the borders and the outlines and shadows and whatever. Uh-huh. It, like, I don't want to think about that stuff most of the time. Like when I need to go and fiddle with the design, sure. But I want to normally just drop in like, which I think a lot of people's, you know, interest in Bootstrap was, I just say, button, button blue or whatever and, and get right. a blue button. But with Tailwind, you got to like think about way more of the details, which is good and bad. You know? And this, I think, makes that feel more like writing regular bootstrap if you got this to help you, you know, mm-hmm. create your buttons, which is cool. So, Yeah, that's definitely like in the, the new Jumpstart app. Because in Jumpstart, y'all have a list of component, like UI components in your documentation and whenever I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I need a card, I create like a new component and then I define the slots. So like for instance, y'all's cards have just like a normal card and then a card with a title and a card with an image. So like I define each of those as a slot. And then now whenever I need a card, I just literally like card. And then if I need, it needs an image, I pass in the slot or give it the add a slot for the image and then a slot for the body. And then, you know, so moving, like taking something like that where the, in the jumpstart docs where it has like, like here's our components as like basically HTML because there's not many, like the CSS y'all have is like headers and like text and buttons pretty much, but not like you don't have really helpers for like the cards and stuff like that. So this is like a super easy way to like take that create your own components and then you're just like, you're rolling. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a nice addition. Cause one of the things that I do regularly that not everybody does, but I, you know, rip out all that CSS and replace it with tailwind UI in jumpstart, <laughs> you know, and that would be nice to have components that were like, cool, you know, flip the switch, turn off the, our like default CSS and, you know, tailwind does not want any, default styles on really anything. And we need to provide that if you're not using Tailwind UI so that it it doesn't look awful, but like we want it to be customizable, you know? And so Mm -hmm. 
you know, we need some nice defaults, but like you should be able to rip it out and just use something. And it would be nice if it was easier. If you had components that you could just grab for Tailwind UI or whatever, that'd be awesome. So maybe something I'll do soon, but make it like an optional thing because I don't want it to be, you know, not everybody's bought Tailwind UI and it should be something that if you've bought Tailwind UI, you can use, but you know, it's a tricky situation with that because it's kind of like a theme. So yeah, you could always take a, like a free theme or a free like a tailwind because there are a few free, like kind of, they're not really, they're not themes, but they're kind of just like, okay, they're kind of like open source versions of tailwind UI. I, that's what I would kind of do because Mm, uh, this past weekend I live streamed um, a little bit and I redid Jason's site in Bridgetown. And one of the things that I did was because I know Jason would want to use Tailwind UI, but because I was, I didn't want to use Tailwind UI because I was, you know, putting this up as open source and also live streaming it yeah. and this and that. I took, I think it's called Tailblocks, which is the one I typically kind of reach for. And it's a free yeah. one. And I just made like components with that. So it's easily like you could swap it out very easily in your like your components, but it's also like something that anyone could use and free. So cool. I'll have to we'll post a link to Tailblocks in the show notes. So anybody who's interested can check that out. That looks really cool. It's very similar kind of to our color scheme color scheme um already in Jumpstart Pro. So this is pretty sweet. Yeah. I like it. Oh this is neat. Yeah it's got contact and you know, blog widgets and all kinds of things. This is cool. Yeah. I don't think I've seen this before. So I will definitely have to be using using this a little bit. Yeah. I I troll the the GitHub awesome page for Tailwind and this is where you can find stuff like this. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's a those awesome lists are awesome. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah. There, there's so many like things you discover reading through those. You're like, oh, I didn't know about that. Like, yeah, whoever started that pattern, like, props to them, because now that's everywhere. Yeah, it's 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 pretty great. Well, All right. uh, we should probably yeah. head out. So uh, I will talk to you next week, and maybe Jason will be back then. But uh, yeah, until then, have a good weekend. Yeah, you as well. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com forward slash remote ruby.